Starting this morning, we are beginning a brand new book and a brand new series in this book called People and Promises. Uh, People and Promises, because what we are about to look through over the next few weeks is the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Matthew. And one of the concerns that I have is that when you read the book of Matthew, you sprint through the names as quickly as possible uh, to get to the meat. Uh, And if we do that, one of the biggest problems that we're going to have is we miss the meat at the beginning. And the problem is, is when we try to eat the meat, if you will, proverbially speaking, through the rest, we don't understand what we're we're doing. And it may taste a little funny because we don't understand it. Well, that's just an interesting way to state this. We have to understand what's going on in the genealogy to understand where Matthew is going when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. Last week, we did an introduction to the gospel of Matthew, and we learned that the gospel of Matthew is pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises to both Abraham and to David. And so the genealogy is proving and showing over and over and over again that Jesus is the one, the promise, and the plan. That it was always through Christ that this was going to happen. Uh, And Christ wasn't just a spur of the moment, things are going bad down there, so you better go down there and fix it. It was always part of the plan for Jesus to be the one who saves us from our sin. And what I'd like to do is show you that from the very beginning before we even jump into the people that we've talked about in the genealogy so far. And so this morning, you don't have to flip to every verse, but you at least jot them down. It can help you get a really good understanding and breadth of where we're going throughout the genealogy. Uh, But as you turn to Matthew 1, I want you to also jot down Genesis 3. When we look at Genesis 3, we're brought to uh, something really interesting and really important for us that really shades the rest of the Bible. If Genesis 3, 14 and 15 weren't there, we don't have the rest of the Bible. And if you've never read it that way, it's a good time to start. Genesis three fourteen through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and to dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Well, obviously we see up to this point, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in it, uh, and it was good. And Adam and Eve were created, uh, and when Adam and Eve were in the garden, uh, the serpent came and tempted Eve and Adam and Eve both fell into that temptation and sinned. And so what we see here in Genesis 3 is now God pronouncing judgment on the serpent and on Adam and on Eve. And this is uh, the judgment that God is pronouncing on the serpent that's going to be really important for the rest of the Bible. It says this, after verse 14, when he told uh, the serpent that you're going to be cursed and you're going to be on your belly and you're going to eat the dust, he says this interesting thing in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Any women in here afraid of snakes? Anyone? No? Yeah? Okay, good. All right, so at least that part's true. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. See, in the Hebrew, that offspring also means seed. And so he's saying between your seed, the snake of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And look, it has a a semicolon, and it says, And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Very interesting, because we're just thinking, for the rest of history, uh, snakes are going to be nasty and scaly and slimy, and people aren't going to like them. I mean, that's where our mind initially goes. But that doesn't make any sense in the narrative of Scripture. Why are we talking about snakes? Who cares about some of the creepy crawly things? Because you need to understand that after that semicolon, it says, He shall bruise your head. I mean, that's singular. And even in the Hebrew, that's a singular word. It doesn't say, and uh, they will bruise your head, or all of the seed of woman, they will bruise your head. It says, he. So even from the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3, there is a promise that God is making, and he's making it in the presence of the serpent and Adam and Eve, that there would become a one, a he, that will come, and that will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Again, singular. Why is that important? It's important because this. The promise throughout Scripture 
is that the promise line, starting at Adam and Eve, is that the seed of woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. Now when you read the Bible, you're going to see that reference multiple times throughout Scripture, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it is one person who will crush the head of the serpent. Now here's what's important about understanding bruising the head and bruising the heel. Uh, When your head is bruised, and we're not just talking about knocking your head, we're talking about crushing. And so what we see happening to the serpent is something that is definite, something that is uh, mortal, something that cannot be survived. And so when we see that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but only the heel of the seed will be bruised. And so from there, we see something very important, that whatever happens to the seed of woman will be temporary. It won't be permanent. What happens to the serpent is permanent. What happens to the seed of the woman is temporary. Okay, we're already seeing the promise lined up that someday someone will come and the thing that you have done to all mankind by deceiving all of mankind, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head, defeat it, will crush the lie and the tempter, and will crush Satan under his foot. And although his foot will be bruised, he will not be killed. He will not be eternally doomed. Now, Just to help you understand that we're talking about not a snake here. We're talking about a person, specifically the Bible names. And we see it in Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 9, it says this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we already see it, right? The deceiver deceived Adam and Eve. We understand Adam to be the federal head. He's a representative of humanity. And as he and Eve were deceived, so then the whole world has been deceived. And here is his end. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And that's just the first fruits of what ends up happening to Satan, is that he gets thrown into, uh, thrown into hell for eternity, and that's where he would spend the rest of his days. What I want to show you, that's the end. What we're showing you is the beginning. And what we're trying to do is fill in the middle so you can trust and understand the promises of God. Because what we have got to understand in the midst of living the day in and day out is understanding the book of Matthew helps you understand the promises of God. And no one needs to understand the promises of God more than me, and I hope you feel the same way about your life, is every day what you need is preached into your heart, the promises of God, the promises of God, and the promises of God. And what Matthew does is does exactly that. It preaches the promises of God to, to you from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. The book of Matthew shows us all of God's promises packed into 28 chapters. And so for you, what I hope is that this is an encouragement to you to show you, wow, uh, God wasn't a reactive God that just kind of did things independently of his promises, that God's always had a promise. He's been fulfilling his promises, even in the dysfunction, even in the chaos, even in the waiting. It's all been one consistent promise. Because one of the biggest problems that we have uh, as Christians is that sometimes we look at the Bible as independent stories that have nothing to do with one another. And sometimes that happens because when you grew up in uh, Sunday school or VBS, you heard about these stories of uh, the the crossing over the Red Sea or David and Goliath or Joshua. Uh, You heard these things, but you heard them independently of how they connect. And you are led to believe that God shows up, but it's kind of like you don't really understand why and where and, and what's going on. Because that's not what the Bible shares. The Bible tells us of God's account through history of how he has consistently been the promise-keeping God and how his promises at the beginning are the same promises he had at the end, and he's just fulfilling them. And so you and I, our goal is not to ask God for different promises. It's to step into the promises that he's already given us. You see, that's what it means to be a Christian, that I step into God's promises. I, uh, through the grace of Christ, am now in that family of promises. Not that I stand over here and say, God, give me my own promises. I step into the promises of God. And so what we're going to do is look to see the promises of God and what they are and how they came about so that we can also understand how it is that you and I become a person and a people of God. So we saw Revelation 12, 9. Uh, Something happens, though, at the beginning of Genesis that really, really... uh, kind of uh, reigns on the parade of the promises of God. So God had promised in the, in the presence of Adam and Eve that there would be an, a seed that comes from woman. Well, there's only one woman, and so we know that that seed has to come from, from her. There's no other woman on earth. And so uh, she has 
who you know to be Cain and Abel. Now, uh, you're gonna, you start now seeing this dichotomy, and it happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament, uh, that uh, although the patriarchs and those who are in, the, in Genesis, they have multiple sons. And God always chooses one son and not the other. There's, uh, you see that throughout all of the Old Testament, and it begins right here at Cain and Abel, that Abel's sacrifices were acceptable to God, and Cain's were not. And so we already see from the beginning that God already had a line that he was choosing. Uh, and at the beginning, you think, okay, he's going to go through the line of Abel because he's the one that's acceptable and pleasing to God. But we all know what happens, don't we? All right, Cain kills Abel. And so at the very beginning, we're left with this, oh, no, there is the promised seed. And now he's dead. What are we going to do? But then God shows up and says, just stop. Be patient. Here's my plan. And this is what he said. Genesis 4.25, here's what Moses records. After the death of Cain and Abel, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring, another seed. Did you see that? She knew the promise that was given. It's going to be a seed through her. And she's like, he appointed me another offspring. The promise of a seed of woman coming to save and redeem us from this problem that was created in the garden, God is still faithful, is what she's saying. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She was thinking, well, the promise is gone because Abel was dead. But no, she had another son that God gave her named Seth. Now, here's where it starts getting into where you are familiar. Seth is Abram's great, 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 great grandfather. Okay, So what we start seeing now is that Seth and Abram are directly related child from child from child from child from child all the way to Abram. And so as we pick up this morning in Matthew 1, we see that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 2, Abraham. So we're getting to Abraham in Genesis 12, and here's some simple things you need to know about Abraham. As God is fulfilling his promise that he made at the very beginning, the minute that sin entered the world and consequences were given, God made the promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, and I'm going to do it through the line in which I have already set apart. And so many people think that Abram is where the line started. How many of you maybe before this morning thought Abraham is where the promises started? Anyone? No one? So no one needed to know the rest of that? Okay, good, good. All right. Uh, me too. Okay, I needed to know that. Uh, the promise didn't start at Abram. It started in Genesis 3. And so when we pick up in Genesis 12, God went to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise with you. And here's my promise. I'm going to make you uh, a father of a great many. I'm going to give you uh, enough children, uh, that you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashores. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And that through you, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations, Abraham, Abram at this time, will be blessed through you. And so there was a promise in Genesis 12 given to them. And they were sitting and saying, God, I take you at your word. There's a promise and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to it. But years go by, and years and years go by, and we get to Genesis 16, just four chapters later, uh, and Abram at the time and Sarai are sitting here, kind of arms crossed, tapping their foot, waiting for the promise of God, because they're getting old. I mean, uh, when the promise was given, uh, Abram was 75, and Sarai was uh, 65, okay? Uh, and they're thinking, okay, I'm already too old to be having kids, but God could make a miracle for a 65-year-old, right? Maybe a 65-year-old woman could have kids. And so years go by, and they're sitting here thinking, okay, but now I'm 70, now I'm 75. Now I'm 80. Now I'm 85. Well, no miracle is going to happen for an 85-year-old. There's just no way these promises are going to happen. And so Abram and Sarah are sitting here, and they're thinking. They're like, well, how can we help God out? Isn't that how we all think? How can I help God do what I think God should do? And that's how most of us think about God's plan and God's promises. Well, we need to understand right now, we're going to put our foot down and say God needs zero help fulfilling his promises. He was doing great before you got here, and he's going to do great when you're not here anymore. Okay? If only Abram and Sarah would have understood that, because then we see in, in Genesis 16, Abram and Sarah uh, concoct a plan where there was a very normal thing uh, that happened in the ancient times where the wife who could not conceive would take her maidservant and give her to the husband as a surrogate mother. And so she says, listen, 
Maybe what God's real plan was, was that it wouldn't come through me. It would come through Hagar, my maidservant. So why don't you take her, and then you have a child with, with her, and perhaps that'll be our heir. Perhaps that was God's plan all along, and he just didn't tell us. Uh, and they did that. And then they had Ishmael. Uh, and when they had Ishmael, it created a lot of family problems, didn't, didn't it? Hagar and Sarah hated each other. Uh, Ishmael kind of got shoved off to the side. He became a nation that was against a lot of what Israel was doing. Later on, actually, we'll get to the line of Ishmael. Ishmaelites are the ones who uh, bought Joseph, one of the descendants of Abraham, and took him into slavery in Egypt. So you just see that there's a lot of problems when they stepped in and said, let me tell you what God want, wants us to do. Okay, So let's just understand that from the beginning. We don't need to step in and tell God what his promises are. We need to sit and expect God to fulfill his promises in spite of us, right? And that's what Abraham and Sarah do. Uh, Genesis 16. Uh, then Genesis 17, God steps in and says, okay, listen, listen. Uh, your name is Abram. I'm going to name you Abraham. Your name was great father. Now your name is going to be a father of great multitudes, Okay, that is your name. And he's just reiterating his promise. I made a promise to you that you'd be a father of many, that you'd be a father of great multitude. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he recapitulates his promise over and over again to him. Uh, and he confirms in Genesis 17 that he's going to give the heir, right? They're going to give him a son through Sarah. So in case next time he tries to find another maidservant, he says, your heir is going to come from Sarai who I'm naming Sarah, which means princess. So you're a great father of, you're of a great multitude, and she's the princess of the nation that is to come. Like, you need to understand that it's coming from her and you, and it's because of me, is what God's trying to say. And don't try to stick your foot in there and make this promise happen any other way, because I'm telling you exactly how it's going to happen. This is good because God's a promise-keeping God, and he lays out his promises very clearly. We just have to make sure that we're stepping into God's promises, and we're not trying to make God's promises happen somewhere in an obscurity. Does that make sense? Are we all on the same page there? Because some of us like to make promises to God and try to make God do our thing, when what we got to do is make sure that we're sitting in God's promises, okay? All right, so here's what happens. Uh, a few chapters later, we get to Genesis 21, and God finally gave Abraham, who is now a hundred years old, his first son through his wife, Sarah. He's a hundred years old. Anybody waiting a hundred years to have their first child? No one. I know some of you in here are probably waiting to have kids, or you're trying to have kids and you can't. Let me just tell you, he was a hundred years old. And, and Sarah is 90. Okay, they waited 25 years for God's promise. And that's a, that's a story and a testimony of saying just because you think things are taking too long doesn't mean God's promise is not on time. Like, you need to understand that God's promise is perfectly on time. As a matter of fact, he says this about the promise of Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come. Did you hear that? When the fullness of time. Like, when it was perfect timing, when the world was exactly where it needed to be, God sent his son as a sacrifice for the sins of many. When the time came... God fulfilled his promises, and God always fulfills his promises right on time. And he does this even though Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90. Uh, and then something really interesting happens because we're, all, we're left at this, we're on this mountaintop. We're like, God did it. It was so good. We waited, we waited, and it was so good. But then something funky happens at Genesis 22. And you can actually turn there if you'd like. Genesis 22. Remember, we keep going back to Genesis because uh, when we look at Matthew, Matthew is telling a story. And he's not just, it's not a fictional story, right? It's a nonfiction story. Like he's saying, here's what happened and here's what you need to know. He's giving these names as a highlight of the stories that happened. At the nine o'clock at the beginning, I shared uh, this. Uh, you know certain uh, contexts if I give you dates. Last week, we talked about Michael Jordan. Remember, I say Michael Jordan, you can tell me the story. Okay, uh, what about this? 9 uh, 11. 1776, 1945. So I just told you three dates, and you knew the minute that I said them, we, we, uh, we asserted what? Uh, the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers of 9-11. Right? You understood that I was talking about 1776, the year that we, when our independence became a nation. Okay? And then you understood 1945, the year that World War II ended. You knew all those things. I didn't even have to tell you. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. He's just name-dropping because everyone who is in the context of the Gospel of Matthew already knew what he meant. The problem is, is we don't. 
And that's why we go back to see, here's what he meant. And this is why the book of Matthew is so important for us, because it gives us the context when we go back to Genesis of the promises of God. Now, there in Genesis 22, you find something really, really important. And it's kind of a uh, climactic situation where we're on a mountaintop because Isaac is finally born. God was faithful to his promises. And now God looks at Abraham and he says, now you're going to take that boy. I want you to go up that mountain, Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him back to me. And Abram, who learned from his previous mistakes of not trusting God, we see in Genesis 22 that he trusted God. And so I'll pick it up uh, at verse uh, 5. They go to the mountain, and in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. This raises some, some conflict, right? There's some tension right here. Like, we know that he's about to go put his son on the altar and sacrifice his one and only loved son. One and only beloved son. Does that ring a bell to you in the New Testament? Matthew 3.16, the Spirit descends on Christ after his baptism, and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When, when we see those in the Gospels, they're pointing back. Do you remember what Abraham did to Isaac, how he was his only son and he was his beloved son? You see, it pays to be Jewish sometimes because you understand what in the world's going on when you and I miss it so often. And so we go back to the Scripture and say, in the Gospels, they were all pointing back to the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac and how that was part of the plan the whole time. So let's continue reading and see what happens. So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and he took his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. And the angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, quote unquote, uh, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is one of your first examples in the book. Of Gen Actually, it's your second off the top of my head. Uh, of a substitutionary sacrifice. A substitutionary atoning death of something in place of what ought to have been sacrificed. Because of the sin of the world, we all ought to be our own sacrifice. Right? We all deserve the death that we all know that we deserve according to the law. And here... When God said, your son is mine, sacrifice him right now. He goes and he sacrifices, and God said, wait, I want to show you a foreshadow of what will be to come. Look up. You're going to see an atonement over there. You're going to see a substitute. Okay, And the substitute is that ram that I have provided for you. You didn't go catch that ram. That ram didn't do anything wrong. That ram is, it didn't do a thing wrong. It's blameless. And you're going to take that ram, and you're going to sacrifice it in place of your own, one and only son. So he takes the ram, he sacrifices the ram, and that is your substitutionary atoning sacrifice that we see that foreshadows the lamb without blemish, the beloved son who is the one and only son of God who was given for the ransom of many. That Christ would be the substitutionary atoning sacrifice in place of you and I as we all deserve to be sacrifice, and we all deserve to die in our own sin and to be given the just judgment of God, we get the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the Lamb who is blameless and spotless in our place. And so even right here in Genesis, we are shown a highlight of the seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent, 
And we see how that's going to happen already foreshadowed in the very first book of the Bible. And you know what that should do? That should give you confidence in the promises of God. I put it this way in point number one. Let God's promises bolster your confidence. What I love is when I read into the Bible and I'm like, oh, no, he's talking about Jesus right there. Like chapter 23, it's like we're not even at Jesus. Jesus is thousands of years from showing up on the earth. And already it's very clear that Jesus is the answer. And what it does for me is it bolsters my faith. And that's why the Old Testament is so important because I think so many times in evangelism and when we're trying to share the gospel with people, people are like, well, why did Jesus even show up? He just, I mean, just some random time in the first century, he just wanted to show up when Rome was in power. Like, just, it just sounds all kind of like kind of kooky that he would just show up at some random time. And we say it wasn't at a random time. It was at the fullness of time that God had sent his son when they hearkened back to the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that through the promise of, of Seth and all the way to Abraham and through Abraham's descendants and his promise that, uh, that God will bless all the nations through Abraham, this is the Christ who has come, who's going to bless all the nations, that he will provide a way for all the nations to be saved. You see, we're not just, we're not just pulling this out of a rabbit's hat. This is, this is continuity at, at its finest. I mean, this is God's plan throughout all ages, and that bolsters my confidence. That gives me faith to say what, what we believe is no figment of anyone's imagination. This is no one's uh, conjuring of literary genius. This is, the, this is God's word and his promise is given to me for all time. And I can trust in that. The way that Hebrews says it in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it defines it this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that is every bit of what the Abrahamic covenant was. He gave him a promise to leave the land of his fathers in Ur. And he says, go to a land that you do not know, to a place that I will tell you, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to make lots of people come from you, and I'm going to bless all the nations because of you. He had a conviction that that promise was going to happen, one that he couldn't see with his eyes. And you and I, we have a promise of God. And although that we are in the already, like we talked about last week, that so much of God's promises are already here, we have a church Right? We are the people of God. This is a kingdom outpost. And although much of it is, is visible to you and I, so much of it isn't. So there is so much of what we have a hope for that we also do not see. But one of the problems in Hebrews 11 is not the Bible, it's us. See, we have hijacked the word hope. You see, you and I, we hope to be billionaires someday, don't we? We hope to, be, we hope to make millions of dollars. See, we use this hope uh, and, and it's a word that means, yeah, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'd sure like it to. But the biblical definition of hope is, is nothing of the sort. The biblical definition of hope is simply this, that it is the eager expectation. You see, Abraham's eager expectation was that when he goes and did what God said to do, God was going to fulfill his promise. It wasn't, if it happens, it happens. I mean, he left everything to go where God told him to go. It was his eager expectation that I'm going to get there. And for you and I, it's not just we hope that Jesus is coming back, that we hope that Jesus reigns, that we hope that he ushers in the kingdom of God, that, he, that we hope that maybe perhaps if it happens, it happens, that, that God will bring a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and then he will pop it down here and we're all going to live in eternity in the presence of God. That's not something we just say, eh, if it happens, it happens. I mean, our eager expectations is all of that's going to happen. That's our e eager expectation. And then the last word that you see there in Hebrews 11 is conviction of things not seen, right? It's one thing to have the eager expectation. It's also important to have the conviction of things. I mean, I think one of the problems of the Christian faith today is we don't have a conviction. We don't have a conviction of things that we don't see. I don't stand on the promises of Christ that he's coming back, and that's why my life doesn't look holy, Right? That's, why, that's why my life doesn't, isn't going after the kingdom of God. That's why I don't live to do good works that God has prepared in advance for me to walk in, according to Ephesians 2.10, because I don't have a conviction that these things are really going to happen. Right? I'm, I don't have a conviction of these things. I don't sell my life out for those things. I have my own kingdom that I want God to kind of give me the promises that I'm trying to make with him. I don't have a conviction that his promises are what I need to live for. I have my own promises. Step into the promises of God. And as we look and as we've already seen, you with great conviction, 
You can have eager expectation that God's going to fulfill all his promises because he keeps doing it over and over and over and over again, even foreshadowing things that are going to happen thousands of years before they ever had happened to give you faith and trust that everything that God says he will fulfill. So you and I could sit right now, stand on the promises of God with eager expectation that Christ is coming back, that Christ will reign, and that Christ will put all things under subjection under his feet, He will make all the bad things good. He will make all the wrong things right. And he will usher in the kingdom of God. And he will bring to here the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem where we will reign with God forever and ever. Amen? Amen? Amen. I need some conviction in here this morning. All right? You need conviction. And this is what I'm talking about because that's what we say. Amen. If it happens, it happens, Pastor. Like, no. It is conviction. This is why Abraham, this is why we talk about Abraham. No one talks about me and you when it comes to faith. We talk about Abraham because he had conviction, because he had faith. We don't talk about you and me because we sit here and think, well, if he wants to do it, he can. What do you mean if? He said he was going to do it. All we got to do is, is walk in it. Come on, church. Faith is the assurance of things that we can expect, a conviction of things that we don't see. You know, God often uses... Uh, insignificance to grow your faith. Anybody ever been in a time of insignificance? A season of insignificance, anyone? It's like a time where you're like, man, I'm just sitting in the middle of nowhere right now. I have no idea what's going on. You know, God uses uh, those times in our lives to grow our faith. Uh, I think about that when I think of the life of Isaac. So we have Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. That's the, that's the first four names that we get to in the covenant uh, that God has made and what we see in the genealogy according to the book of Matthew. And the second name we get is, is Isaac. And I defined Isaac as this, the anticlimactic promised son. Right? I mean, he's just, the, he's just there, you know? And like, you would think that after all this time talking about an heir, that Isaac would be a lot better than he is. He'd be a lot like, you know, you'd think this guy's going to go do things with his life. Like, he's going places. And he gets like three chapters in, in the book of Genesis. Like, like Joseph gets like 16 and Abraham gets like 16 or 17. I mean, they get all these. And then you have Isaac here. He's like, yeah, well, he marries Rebecca. That's nice. He has two sons. And this is where it starts getting dramatic because his sons are actually the drama people. He's just pretty chill. Uh, he marries Rebecca in Genesis 24. In the next chapter, Isaac has two sons. So just run of the mill, just got married, had two kids, a dog named Spot. Uh, and he has, has two sons. And this is important because this is where it starts getting, getting a little strange. Uh, Jacob whose name is Heel Grabber, or also uh, the Deceiver, right? Uh, Heel Grabber, because when uh, they were born, Jacob and Esau, uh, Esau came out first, and Jacob was holding his heel. And like, you know, has anyone ever held your heel to keep you from doing something? Isn't that the most annoying thing? Maybe when your kids are, are like, you know, you're trying to leave the house and your kids are grabbing your leg, anyone? Right? Like the heel grabber. Like, you're like, get off, right? I, gotta, I got somewhere to go. Okay, same concept. He's a heel grabber. And then you have Esau, whose name is Harry. So you have Hillgrabber and Harry, uh, and the, a lot of the Bible is based off of these two guys, Harry and Hillgrabber. Okay, and verse 23 actually tells you something significant about Isaac's two sons. Uh, verse 23 says, the younger will ser- serve the older. And you're going to start seeing this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, that uh, it was always the right of the older person to have the double blessing. It was always the older person that should be the heir to whatever promise was coming. Uh, but God's often, his answer is, the older will so, or, or the younger will serve the older. Or I'm going to take the one that other people don't want. King, King David, like how, many sons, uh, how many sons were they looking at before they got to David? Quite a lot, huh? I mean, he, he, was not, he wasn't even lined up when they came to look for the heir to come. Like he was out in the field taking care of his sheep. And they said, well, what about, you have another son? He's like, well, I have another son, but you're not going to want to see him. He's like, bring him to me. And he brings him to him, and the son that no one thought was going to amount to anything was one that God chose. Okay, we see it all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it again here, that the younger will serve the older, and it's the opportunity that we've already seen to understand that there are two lines, right? There's the unrighteous line, and there's the righteous line. We have the line of Cain, Okay, now Esau is going to join that line, and Jacob is going to join the line of the promises. You'll notice in the Old Testament, this little sidebar, uh, how all these people start uh, expanding, and there's all these enemies of Israel, you notice. They're almost all just the other sons of Abraham and Adam that just decided not to follow God, or that God hadn't chosen. 
And so that's all it is. A lot of the enemies of Israel were those people born who decided or God didn't choose to follow him. And so what we follow throughout Scripture is the line of the promise. That's why sometimes a lot of people become obscure because we're not talking about them. We're talking about the line of the promise. So we focus on that one. So we see that uh, continuing to reveal itself in the birth of Jacob and Esau. And really, other than that, all that really happens in the life of Isaac is that God confirms his promise to Isaac, or the same promise that he had with uh, Abraham. And so uh, Abraham, he's, he's died, uh, Isaac is here, and God just says, hey, I'm going to give you that same promise, the same one that I gave to your father, that's for you too, and that's for your line. Uh, and other than that, Jacob, Isaac's life was pretty uneventful, not a lot was going on. Uh, and, and although that it was anticlimactic, although there was a lot of space in between, a lot of ambiguity, uh, what, what it should do to us is do this in its point number two. It should allow God's promises to produce patience in our lives. You hear what I'm saying? Uh, when life is, seems insignificant and some things happen, but it doesn't happen to, in, within the boom and fireworks that you think it should, uh, just be patient. Often God is fulfilling his promises uh, in ways that seem insignificant. Um, there's two things that come to mind in Scripture. One is, do not despise the day of small beginnings. You've heard that Scripture. Or, uh, the kingdom of heaven will not come uh, in, in the way that everyone expects, but it will come uh, as, a, as a little, uh, what do you say, as a mustard plant. And it'll grow, and it'll grow, but it's really small, and it'll be unassuming. But when it arrives, it's the largest of all the garden plants. And birds even nest in them. Do you see? Uh, it's not going to come in the ways that you think that is the promises of God. It's going to come in the way that God has promised them. And sometimes God often promises his plan through long periods of time. And for you and I, that means we need to be patient. And we need to let our faith and our trust in God produce patience in our lives when it seems like God's not up to much right now. Because although it doesn't seem like God is up to much right now, he's fulfilling his promises just as much as he was in Genesis, just as much as he was in Christ, and just as much as he will when he returns. God is fulfilling those promises right now in our lives and in our world. And there's a, a verse that I love to talk about, and we'll just do the first part of it, 2 Peter 3.9. And I love talking about this verse because it, it kind of lets the cat out of the bag when it comes to how God works. And we love it when the cat gets out of the bag when it comes to how God works because we want to know if this is exactly how God works. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. Jot it down, or if you're there, you can follow along in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. And there it is. That, that's for you, right, to take with you. God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. And I love that because he's like, I get it. Some people have a different definition of slowness than God has. But rest assured that whatever their definition is, God has the right definition. And although to you, God may seem slow in fulfilling his promises, God is right on time. And God is perfectly correct in all of his measurement and all of his righteousness and all of his promise keeping. God is right on track. And I love what it continues to say in verse 9. But he's patient toward you. So he's not slow to fulfill his promises. He's patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God patient right now to come back to receive his people? Because he's waiting on people to turn from their sins and to trust in him. So I'm all for God waiting right now. I'm all for being patient right now as we wait for the coming Messiah to come and to rule and to reign because I want more people to come to know him. I want more people to get saved. I want more people to turn from their sins and place their trust in him so that that promise that he gave to Abraham that is fulfilled through Christ, that's my promise because I'm now a child of Abraham, not by blood but of the Spirit, and that anyone who comes to know him is also a child of the promise. They're also sons of Abraham. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm sitting here and I'm like, Jesus, come back. Maranatha, right? Come on back, Lord. But I'm also sitting here patient because I said, I want more people saved. I don't want to be the last. I don't want this person to be the last. I want there to be many, 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 many more. And I want the world to know Jesus. And so I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait patiently. And I'm going to allow my faith to produce the patience that is going to uh, do this, and it's in James. You don't have to jot this down. Just listen to this. Here's something that patience does that, I, that the Scripture makes very clear. Count it all joy, my brothers, in James 1. Count it all joys, my brother, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know another word for steadfastness? 
patience. It produces patience. And let patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is something that happens when God doesn't give me everything I want right now. It gives me the patience, and it produces patience. With that patience produces a perfection and a completeness that I have in my life. Does that mean I'm never going to do anything wrong? No. But what it means is that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That you are lacking no good thing from God because you are allowing God's promises in your life to become evident and you're stepping into God's promises and you're not trying to create your own, you're not trying to run your own life, you're being patient with, and you're allowing, allowing God's promises to work in the world. Right? That's what we need. We need more of those people. We need less people saying, why isn't God doing this? Or why did God let that happen? Why did God let that happen? What we need more people saying, you know, the Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but God's patient not wishing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need more of those kind of people in the world, don't we? You know, God also works through dysfunction. He works through insignificance, and he works through dysfunction. Anybody need, need an amen to that dysfunction? Especially of the familial variety, anyone? Anybody have family dysfunction? I have family dysfunction. I have a lot. It, I, my family puts the fun in dysfunction. And... Uh, the good news is when I read Scripture, especially when I read the life of, uh, of Jacob, we talked a little bit about Jacob earlier, when I read the life of Jacob, I'm like, that is the most dysfunctional family I think I have ever seen in my whole life. I mean, this is where soap operas got their story plot line from the life of Jacob. I mean, when I think of Jacob, I look at Genesis 25, I mean, already his name is Hill Grabber. I mean, that's already, I mean he's, he's already causing problems, and he ain't been born yet. Um, and he was, but he was the younger son, and he was chosen by God, and I don't want you to forget that. Right? God chose him before he ever did anything wrong or right, says the book of Romans. God had chosen him to be the heir of the promise. I'm going to leave that with you for you to understand that it wasn't Jacob's goodness that made him the chosen son. It wasn't Jacob's good looks. It wasn't his manliness. It was God's promise that made him the chosen son. Okay? Okay, in Genesis 25, we see Jacob at his shenanigans causing problems. In Genesis 25, uh, we see Jacob, he buys Esau's birthright. Okay, there's a birthright given to all of the, the oldest sons. If you're the first son, there's a birthright that you're given, birthright. It's a right you get at your birth, and you get the inheritance of your father. You get a double inheritance. Uh, you get so much of what your father had is now in yours. That's your birthright. You get that when you were born because you were the firstborn. And so since Jacob is the secondborn, uh, in Genesis 25 tells the story of Esau. He's, he's a hunter. He's a hairy man. Remember, his name's Harry. Uh, he goes out, he hunts. He's coming back, and uh, he's very dramatic too, however. And he's like, listen, I need some of that soup. Give me some of that soup because uh, Jacob was a mama's boy, and he was in the kitchen cooking. And uh, he says, well, I'll give you some of that, that soup, but give me your birthright. Give me, give me your birthright. Give me your birthright. And he says, well, what do I need my birthright anyway? Like, I'm about to die. I'm like, okay, side point. Okay, when you're tired and hungry, take a deep breath, right? Don't be dramatic like Esau. Okay, back here. Okay, he, he says, oh, what, am I, what do I need it for? I'm about to die anyway. And so instead of Jacob being a good son who just says, you know, or a good brother, just, hey, you know what? Why don't you take the soup? Keep that birthright. You're going to need it. Uh, and I'll just give you some soup. No, he says, no, 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 give me your birthright. So he sells him his birthright for a bowl of soup. I mean, dysfunction to the nth degree here. Okay, and so we see that big problem, very manipulative. But it doesn't stop there because two chapters later, you see the hill grabber, the deceiver doing something else. Okay, not only did God call him the chosen son, even though he wasn't the firstborn, he also stole his brother's birthright. And in 27, we see something else. That at his father's deathbed, Isaac is literally dying. He's on his deathbed. He can't see, right? Uh, and he walks in, and he's dressed up like Esau. He's got, like, animal hair on his arm. He's got a really deep voice, just like Esau. And he walks up, and he's like, I'm Esau. Because it was very common practice uh, for the father at their deathbed to bless their sons and to give them blessings and portions of whatever, uh, whatever promises they've made or whatever promises belong to them i.e. the promises of God, okay? And so uh, Isaac reaches out, although he's questioning whether or not that is Esau, he can't see him, and so he's just trusting that it is. And literally, Jacob stole Esau's blessing on the deathbed of his father. And you can imagine uh, 
Esau's pretty ticked. He's like, God already chose you at the beginning. You're already the favorite son. Mom loves you. Uh, and then you also took my bless, or you took my birthright, and you stole my blessing. Now, this doesn't sound like a great guy, does it? Like, do you think God wants to send Jesus through that line? Hmm? He does. He does, right? Which should show you that God's promises does not have to do with you and I's goodness. It has nothing to do with how good we are and how great we are. A lying and deceiving, manipulative son is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. It's to show you that throughout the promises, that person wasn't the promised heir. That person was a mess up. And through the whole line, through Matthew that we're going to read, the whole time you're going to say, that person was a mess up, that person was a mess up, that person was a mess up. The genealogy isn't supposed to show you these great shining people who are awesome. It's supposed to show you flawed men and flawed women who could have never culminated in fulfilling the promises of God. There was only one person to do that, and his name was Jesus Christ. And so what we see, again, is Jacob being Jacob. And uh, he flees to Paddan Aram, that is his mother's homeland, to escape the wrath of Esau after their father's death. Uh, and then in the next chapter, uh, Jacob gets his just desserts. In Genesis 19, uh, Jacob uh, gets into a contract with Laban, which is his, his mother's brother, I believe. Laban is her, his mother's brother. And he gets in a contract with, with him to work seven years for the wife that he wants, the wife Rachel. He loves Rachel. He wants Rachel. And so he agrees to work seven years for Rachel and uh, he works his whole seven years, and at the end of the seven years, Laban says, you can have Leah. And he's like, I didn't work for Leah, I worked for Rachel. Well, you're going to get Leah. And Leah's a more homely-looking gal, more uh, just not, not the woman, not the woman that he wanted, and that's why he said, I've got to marry her, I've got to get her, and I'm going to manipulate you, which I find interesting because the whole time up to this point, Jacob is manipulating and now we get to a place where Jacob is being manipulated. And so we, seven years, he gets Leah, uh, but he wants Rachel. And so he enters into another contract to work another seven years to get the wife that he wanted in Rachel. And so 14 years of work, he gets, he gets his wife that he had wanted, uh, still married to, to Leah. Uh, and he worked 14 years because he was duped. Uh, just like he duped people before him. But there's a turning point in, even in Jacob's life, and you shouldn't uh, forget it because this is where things change for the whole promise. I shouldn't say change. Things become fulfilled in the promises of God. You see something change uh, as we look forward to the promises of God being fulfilled. Uh, you see it in, in Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with God. So this is the part where, where God and Jacob, they're struggling together, uh, and Jacob prevails. Or you would say it this way, God allowed Jacob to prevail. And this is the part where uh, Jacob's name changes. Jacob meant hill grabber and deceiver. He is now named Israel, which means that he strives with God. And so now we have this deceiver and manipulator who now is walking step in step with God. He strives with God. He fights with God and prevails. Like he's somebody who now knows is an intimately acquainted with God. So you see how his life, that would be a conversion experience. This is where his life now is conformed into the promises of God, of no work of his own, of God's blessing in his life. And so, verse 32, his name is now Israel. And in verse, uh, chapter 35, just a couple of chapters later, God confirms the same promise that he's made in Genesis 3. He confirmed it in Abraham. He confirmed it in Isaac. And now he's confirming it with Jacob. And now here's something happens. Uh, between Rachel and Leah and Bilhah, uh, Bilhah and uh, who's the other maidservant? Zilpah. Zilpah, between uh, those four gals, just remember it was very common, although even biblically you could say not appropriate, that it was common to take the maid servant, give them to uh, the husband uh, as a surrogate. And so you still have that here. And through uh, Leah and Rachel and Zil uh, Zilpah and Bilhah, you have 12 sons being born. And so you have the 12 sons being born. And now Jacob's name is now what? And now you have the 12 sons of which are going to be the 12 tribes of... So now you're starting to see a nation form, aren't you? Right? It was just one people, two kids, one promise. And now you start seeing 12 people, 12 tribes. And so now we're going to see that being played out. Uh, and all I'm trying to say is point number three. 
when you see this picture come about, you should trust God's promises in the dysfunction. I mean, we all agree that was very dysfunctional. Whatever just happened over the last few chapters was the definition of dysfunctional family. And even in all of that, you see finally a clear enough picture to say, oh, look, here are the 12 tribes, or at least not completely the 12 tribes, because uh, out of the 12 tribes, uh, the son Levi, he takes the priestly line, so he actually doesn't get an allotment of land, so he's technically not a tribe that has allotted land. And then Joseph, although he's a son, there is no tribe of Joseph. But his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they both get a tribe, and so those two tribes come up. You still equals 12 tribes, but you're going to get really confused if you're looking for a tribe of Joseph, because you're never going to find one, because he actually gets two through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That was just extra credit for you guys. You can trust God's promises in the dysfunction. Uh, There is no better place to find the proof for that concept and that biblical principle than just a few chapters later in Genesis 50. In Genesis 50, chapter 20, this is what uh, Joseph says to his brothers. Uh, At this point, uh, Jacob or Israel has died, and now all the brothers who uh, sold Joseph into slavery, uh, they're they're real concerned because they're like, okay, he's really powerful. Our daddy's not here to protect us anymore. Uh, We got to figure out what to do. And they go to him and they bow down before him and they said, just be merciful. And here's what Joseph says. As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, that is the, isn't that, doesn't that just show you uh, somebody who is going after God and who isn't trying to keep uh, vindictive motives and isn't trying to count people's wrongs? And he's somebody who said, listen, I understand that God works through dysfunction. And I understand that part of that dysfunction was that you guys sold me to the Ishmaelites and that they would sold me to some of the, uh, the officials of Pharaoh so that I could get you guys all here, so that we could become a nation. Like, of course, he didn't know all of that, but he knew enough to say, God did this, not you. And so that's, that's a message for all of us to understand that in the promises of God, when I stand in the line of the promises of God, dysfunction is not out of the question. As a matter of fact, we see it in Scripture that dysfunction is very much a part of often how God brings his plan about. And although that you may look at other people and say, you did this to me, you did this to me, uh, we need to look at what the Bible says and say, although you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Right? That is standing in the promises of God. And that's why we can look to Jesus Christ when they meant evil for him, when when the scripture says in Acts 2 or 3 uh, that there were people standing against Christ, Pontius Pilate and, and the rulers in, in Israel, and they were there to crucify him, they delivered him over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There was nothing more heinous than the Son of God being crucified, the perfect Son who never did anything wrong, nothing more heinous and nothing more evil, and yet it was to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Although you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. There was no worse thing that ever happened in the history of the world than the death of the Son of God. There was nothing better and more good that has ever happened than the death and resurrection of God. Come on, guys. You see this? You see this thread? Isn't this good? Come on. Come on, church. This is good stuff. All right. Let the promises and the dysfunction. Uh, And you know what? In the dysfunction, God works. You know where God also works? In the ambiguity. That's a big word that means like when things seem a little like I don't understand where things are, uh, but God is still working. Uh, And that is seen no better place than in the life of Judah. This is a place I had often had issues with when I was reading the Bible because I understood that Jesus was from the line of Judah. And so one time I tried to do a Bible study. I'm like, let me just follow Judah through the Old Testament from from like uh, Matthew back to Genesis. And I'm like, that was hard. It was very difficult. And I had a hard time finding the line of Judah. I mean, obviously David. And, but I'm like, why isn't Judah like the central figure? I'm like, God, if I were you, <laughs> God, if I were you, uh, I would make Judah like the person, right? Like, like the person, like, I don't know why it's Joseph. Why isn't it Judah? It should be Joseph who, who is Judah in this story. And Judah should be Joseph who came and took uh, Israel and put them in Egypt so they could be saved and all those good things. But I'm not God, and thank goodness I'm not. Because you know what God does? He works through ambiguity. He works through the kind of like, I don't get it, but it's still God's plan kind of way. Uh, because what we see in Genesis 37, when we look at Judah, who's the last name we'll look at this morning in the genealogy, uh, we see him, but we see him in a different way. 
We see Judah, but we see him through the, line of, through the narrative of Joseph. Like, the rest of Genesis is talking about Joseph. Joseph this, Joseph that, Joseph this. I'm like, why are we talking about Joseph and not Judah? Uh, but there's something interesting that happens. Genesis 37, uh, the sons of Israel, they sell Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites, which if you know something about that, you understand that that's Ishmael is the descendant, or Ishmael, that's the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, who is Abraham's uh, son through disobedience. And now Abraham's great, great, great grandson is being sold into slavery by the very nation that he created through disobedience to God. Can you believe that? Come on, guys, you don't make this stuff up. It's right there. All right. And so uh, he gets sold to the Ishmaelites, and then they go to Egypt and sell him to an officer of Pharaoh. Now, this is really important because something I didn't tell you, that if you go back to Genesis 15 and you read verses 13 and 14, you actually read something that you need to know. In those verses, you read this, that part of the Abrahamic covenant and promise was that God promised Abraham that he would send his descendants into captivity for 400 years. Like, it's verbatim, like literally exactly that way. For 400 years, your descendants will be in slavery. And so this is the enactment. If you, if, if you follow like literary devices, when you see, uh-oh, Joseph is going to Egypt, 400 years, like you already saw this coming. This should not be a thing like that you don't know because you've already read that in Genesis 15. And so what, what God's doing is setting up the Israelite captivity there in Egypt as Joseph is being sold into slavery. Now, uh, you're automatically, from chapter 37, going to think like me and think, okay, we're about to take a trip to, to Egypt, and we're going to spend the next 400 years in Egypt. Uh, but if you're like me, you're wrong, because the very next chapter, we don't even look at Joseph. We look at Judah, which I'm like, why? Like, why did he just pop up right there? I mean, somebody just got human trafficked, and we're just going to, like, throw that off to the side and start talking about Judah? Like, but it's important for you to know because Judah, he has a strange cameo right here, but it should get your attention because although it's obscure and there's some ambiguity in what's going on and why aren't we focusing on other thing in chapter 38, it's because that Judah is the chosen heir of the line of Christ. And so, of course, we're going to take some time in the middle of this to look at Judah. Uh, and Judah, even in chapter 38, he's not a great guy, right? Uh, his, uh, his uh, yeah, some bad things happen. Uh, Judah puts this gal off who uh, was actually her, his uh, daughter-in-law, and uh, his son died, basically. He, he promised to uh, get her another son who, as he grew up, would marry her because there was a thing called leveret marriage, which you had to, if your son died, or if a son died, the other son would marry the wife and bear children in the name of that son, which is all its own other implications we'll talk about later. But basically, uh, the son didn't want to marry her. They forgot about her. She went, dressed up like a temple prostitute, uh, slept with him, Judah, <laughs> okay? And then uh, Judah got caught after he tried to catch her uh, in, a, in a really peculiar precarious position. We can get into the details of that later. But just know this, Judah was caught red-handed being a doofus. Okay, and that's what chapter 38 is there to teach us. And so even Judah, who's the line of the heir of Christ, not looked at as a great, as a great role model. But later, he redeems himself, or God redeems him and uses him to do some great things that we'll get to. So, uh, you see that in verse 38. But literally from Genesis 40 to 50, the next 10 chapters, here's what you see. Joseph in uh, Egypt rising to prominence. You all, this is probably what you know the most in Genesis is Joseph and the story of Joseph and how he became the second in power. Uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, President Pharaoh and Vice President Joseph. And uh, that's funny because Joe, okay, Joseph. <laughs> There it goes, okay? All right, so he's rising to prominence in Israel, uh, and then a famine takes place, and you understand the part of the prophecy and how God showed Joseph this was going to happen, uh, and so they actually made uh, preparation for the famine that was coming, so Joseph stored up a lot of grain and a lot of food, uh, and so everyone from around the countries, other countries, were fleeing to Egypt to buy food, and so this is where uh, Israel's sons come back in. Now they go to Egypt because they need food. And they get to Egypt, and through some events, they figure out that that second in command, Vice President Joseph, he's their brother. Bum, bum, bum. Like, come on, guys, this is cool. All right? And, and they're like, 
oh man, you know. And so basically, uh, after a while, um, Joseph and Pharaoh talk to him. He says, I want to send my whole family here, and I want them to come here. And the Pharaoh says, you know what, pick the best land uh, and bring your family. And they settled in Goshen. And from that point is what I would call the incubation of a nation, okay? Uh, you, have, you have the 12 sons, you ha- have their family, uh, but yet they're not like a, they're like a fledgling nation. Like they're not, they don't have power, they don't have structure, they don't have any of that stuff. But the next 400 years, we read in the first, ver- uh, first chapter of Exodus in verse 7 what actually happened over that 400 years. It says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Come on. Do you see God working in the dysfunction, working in the ambiguity, and all of a sudden, uh, although they're enslaved for 400 years, as per the promise, uh, they're also at a place where they have their needs met. They may be enslaved, and no one that's not great, right? But God had placed them in that situation for them to grow and become mighty and become a great nation. So when the time comes, he would release them and send them to the promised land, right? The promised land, the land that was promised to them through Abraham. And so all I'm saying there is you can write this down on point number four, is you need to believe God's promise in the obscurity. Like, I get it. Judah seems really obscure right here. We're wondering what his part is. Uh, but uh, even though he's not talked about a lot, uh, we have to understand that Judah was still very present and was still very active in the life of Israel, even during the early days. And even though we talk a lot about Joseph, the real storyline is chapter 38 and chapter 49. So chapter 49 of Genesis says this, uh, Israel is dying, like Jacob, right? Jacob, Israel, the patriarch, he's dying and is on his deathbed. And as is normal, right, he is laying on his deathbed and he's giving blessings to his sons. And this is what he says to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now listen to this, chapter, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Did you see the promise to Judah that he would be the lion of Judah? The lion of Judah, anybody? Okay, Jesus, the lion of Judah. And it says this, that the scepter shall never depart from his hand, and that to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Who is Jesus? King of kings, Lord of lords. The scepter shall never depart from his hand. He was the promised Davidic fulfillment, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, was that he would be the, on the throne forever, and the scepter shall never depart from him. And then what are we looking forward to and eagerly expecting when Jesus comes back? That he will come to conquer, and, he, and to him shall be the obedience of all people. You can't make that up right there, even in Genesis 49, looking forward to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ as the Lion of Judah. And you want to know how I know that's exactly what it's talking about? One more verse. Revelation 5. Last verse, Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? If you have no idea what's going on right now, the scroll and the seals was was God's plan in acting judgment on the earth at the time of judgment. And there was no one who was worthy to open it. And there was no one in heaven, there was no one there who was adequate and sufficient to open up God's plan for the world. Okay, that's, that's all that is. But watch what happens. And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is the revelator John, right? John began weeping loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Are you kidding me? 
like literally, the angel of the Lord is quoting Genesis and quoting the Old Testament saying, just like Matthew was doing, he is the heir to the throne, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's the Christ. He is the line of the tribe of Judah, and he is worthy to open the scrolls, and he is worthy that the whole world would bow to him, and the obedience of the people will be at his disposal. Come on, church. Like, that's why the promises of the Old Testament in Genesis are for us here and now, because so many of those promises are going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back, and we're in the between those things. So all these promises are meant to give you and I faith and trust that all the promises aren't individual stories. It's God's promise throughout history for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Judah, for you, and for me. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that this, although this is an, an overview, a 40,000-foot view of, uh, of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, that, that this didn't miss our hearts and miss our minds, that this hit the target to help us understand that we should have the utmost trust in you and your promises, that your covenants fulfilled in Christ ought to give us hope uh, that Christ wasn't just a, uh, a come-and-fix-it person, somebody who was not planned, somebody who just kind of in the spur of the moment came down to fix some problems that were happening. But ever since Genesis 3, when, when you promised, God, that there would be a seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, God, the ancient serpent of evil, who, the deceiver of the nations, that you promised an heir to come defeat him. And although that his heel would be wounded, although that he'd be hung on that cross, and although that he would die, that he would be buried, at three days he would raise and he would conquer And that's the promise that we have fulfilled in the seed of the woman through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and we have Jesus Christ. And I just pray that that gives us utmost faith as we live out this week and that we would apply the promises of God in Christ, that we are all children of the promise, uh, not through blood, but of the Spirit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.